Wait, hello. Hello, good evening. I don't get to stand at a lectern that often, so I'm just going to exploit this moment. Um, welcome to Conway Hall. Um, this is a slightly new gathering called New Lands. Um, some of you may know the London 14 Society, which me and David run, who meet here. Um, we, we, we're still doing lots of talks. We, we've got ones coming up about Bigfoot in Britain and witches and um, ghosts coming up. Oh, oh and yet, yeah, what else? Yeah, I haven't booked it yet. The Secret Life of Yuri Gale. Um, this is a spin-off in that. Um, basically, it's me just sort of thinking of different ways, because all of that is different ways of seeing the world. Uh, but doing some other stuff that is different ways of seeing the world, uh, which, is, which has got the name New Lands. Uh, we had John Grimaud talking about the Greenbelt last, last month, and um, really pleased that John is, this John is speaking just, speaking just this evening. Before we begin, uh, just so you know, firstly, sorry there's no bar. <laughs> Hang on, stay, stay strong, brothers and sisters, okay? <laughs> We do, we'll be finishing in about an hour and a quarter, and we do go to pub after. And um, it's a Tuesday night, there'll be room for all of us. Occasionally, Adam Curtis is there. It's Wednesday, but, Wednesday. Is it Wednesday? Yeah. Same difference. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got a really good explanation why I've got what day it is, but it's really boring to everyone else. children. <laughs> um, so yeah, pub after. Um, come along and have a bit. Um, John's book is available from the lovely people outside. There are signed copies. Do, if you do not have a copy already, get it. It is great. I've got a signed copy. It's addressed to someone called Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> but, That's why Adrian's got one addressed to someone called Scott. Yeah. Nice recovery. I'm <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we're New Lands. Our, ne our next talk is on the 2nd of, Octo 2nd of October on um, the strange people living in e Epping Forest. <laughs> that one's going to be great too. Che check out our website, New Lands, and Twitter. But first, please welcome, um, I don't know, kind of slightly embarrassing. One of, you know, one of the finest writers of sort of fe ephemeral culture in Britain at the moment. But when I say ephemeral, I mean only in the, into consciousness rather than it is really important. The KLF and the weird history of our roads and interesting people is really important. So do please welcome, talking on Watling Street, John Hicks. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's very kind. Can, can you hear me okay? I'm supposed to use a microphone because I'm recording it. But, uh, is that okay? Can you hear me? It's very weird to be invited to a, uh, a set of talks called New Lands to talk about uh, a book uh, which is a journey across pretty much as older, older land as they come, really. Um, but it sort, of, it sort of makes sense. It sort of works. Its book is very much about uh, looking again at this island uh, with, with fresh eyes. You know, there's, there's, there's two uh, trains of thought about how you go out and find treasure. There's the... Uh, there's the version you get in books like The Hobbit, where if you if you want treasure, you have to you know leave your house and set off on a on a grand journey across misty mountains and and voyage far into the distance, and then you'll find your treasure. And then there's the theory that you just stay where you are and you just sort of you just squint a bit, you just squint a bit at the ground, and eventually it'll turn gold. This this book's very much in that uh, uh, that sort of that sort of genre. It is a book about a road, just, just, just a simple road. Uh, you'll know it as the, um, 
the A A5 and the A2, essentially. It's, it starts in Dover, it goes through London, all the way up to uh, Anglesey. The bit in London, uh, originally it went uh, across West, Westminster before, before London was built. That was where the Ford was, you know. But after the Romans came uh, and moved the bridge, it cut through the centre of London. And because the centre of London is the biggest sort of churn over the centuries that anything's been, this is the one part where the road's lost, okay? We know where it is up to St. Paul's. We know where it goes from uh, Marble Arch onwards, but this bit is missing. But if you drew a line between St. Paul's and Marble Arch, it pretty much exactly crosses here, right? So we, I, thi I think, we're, yeah, yeah, really, yeah, <laughs> really. I'm not saying we're definitely on Watling Street, but it's probably a stone's throw away. We're probably staggering it across it sort of later in the day. So it's this, it's this hidden sort of, sort of ghost. Uh, and the thing to say about this road is it has always been there, right? It's, it's a constant throughout our entire history. We talk of it as a Roman road far older than that. It's, it's, it's a road uh, so old we don't know how old it is. That's how old the road is. It's, it's, I mean, you have to think back to after the Ice Age when this, this island was just all heavily forested and you have to think back to those first feet sort of finding their way through the, through the forest, looking for the dry land, looking for the high ground, looking for the right paths through, through the woodland. Not necessarily humans, right? Not necessarily human feet, like snuffly little pig creatures. <laughs> finding the best, the best routes. Uh, people come along later, they follow those tracks, those tracks become a path, a path becomes a, a hollowway, it becomes a road. The Romans turn up, uh, all the bit through London, they, they straighten, you know, they, they, they um, uh, straighten and march on it, and then uh, after that it becomes one of the four royal highways. These are, these are roads so important to... Uh, to the kingdom, uh, that they have the king's law. If you, if you watch Game of Thrones, you know they have the king's road. It's the, it's the same thing, it's, it's one of those, it's, it's, it's the king's road. Uh, you get the age of, of coach travel, it becomes a turnpike. Uh, you, you get to now when it becomes the A2 and the A5. It's a palimpsest, right? It's always being rewritten. But the thing is, it's always there, it's always changing. Normally, if you're to write about a historic place, You'd be thinking of, you know, a castle or a, a battlefield, and these are usually places that the, the National Trust has, you know, put a fence around and, and put a tea shop in and charge you a tenner, and, and, and they've preserved it. They've preserved it exactly as it was in, you know, 1746 or something, and you go along and you, you see what 1746 was like, and, and, that, and that's great, and that's useful, but if our roots are our past, if those are the things that are supposed to nourish us and define us, Places that are preserved like that are essentially dead. They're, they're dead. And, you know, the th one thing about a road like this is there's no way, right, there's no way the National Trust was ever going to put a road, uh, a fence all around, around that. It just, it just sort of can't be controlled. It becomes, it's, remains a living, changing uh, thing that's fluid, uh, always modern, but at the same time eternal, always been here, always been here. So it, beca it became a nice... Uh, angle to, to sort of write about this country uh, and um, yeah and, and, and the nice thing about it is it's because it's always there you see, you, whatever, however old maps you go there's Watling Street uh, it, it's always on every single map but when you start to look at sort of maps like this I never heard of you know, Valencia I never heard of any any things like this you start to realize that by using a road to 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 think about a country you get entirely you get entirely different view an entirely different story than 
the, the sort of narratives we're, we're normally told. The narratives tend to be, I don't know, the Norman story, you know, 1066 on. They tend to be the sort of the winner's script. They tend to be the story of kings and things like that. They're all inherently political in some way. They don't mean to be, uh, but they just are. A road, it's just entirely neutral. It's enti it doesn't care. It doesn't care who goes on it. You know, it just facilitates uh, stuff. It facilitates anything. It, it doesn't care. And if you tell the story of the country from an entirely neutral perspective, uh, you do get this this fresh vision, this fresh vision uh, of, of what we're talking about. Um, this, uh, this Watling Street isn't on this map, but I just, I just love this one. Um, this is after the, after the Romans had cleared, cleared off. <laughs> These dark bits here, this is, this is the arrival of the, the Angles and the Saxons and the Dukes, the Germanic people, the, 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 birth, the birth of England. And, uh, and brilliantly, this projector is exactly like my printer, and it just doesn't do red. It's, uh, it's, it's, bizarre, it's bizarrely accurate. But what I loved about this, obviously you notice this. Right. Uh huh. But then, then you look again. And you go, hang on. What's this here? <laughs> was was I just ignorant of all this? I, I had no idea that the the Scots were from what we now call Ireland, and that they, uh, you know, uh, came across and they uh, they conquered the land that they called Scotland. They pushed the Picts back and uh, created Scotland. And then at some point afterwards, they they sort of crossed the water again as the, the Ulster Scots and caused all sorts of you know terrible trouble and, and uh, we're, we're still dealing with today. When you see when you when you look again at maps like this, you just realise how arbitrary your 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 sense of this country is. You know, look at there's no way when you look at this with Welsh here and, and sort of Scots here and you know take any English or Scottish nationalism seriously, right? It's just it just all falls all falls apart. Um, this is just, this, this is a lovely thing, uh, you can't see it at all well, uh, but uh, some guy on the internet just does uh, tube map style things of Roman uh, roads. And I don't know if you see Britain up in the corner, and then there's Watling Street. And it's just, uh, it's just, a, I just included it there to show that it meant, you know, you, you're connected to the world, right? Any, anywhere along that road is, you know what it's like to be on the tube line, you know, to your, to your house prices. You know, it, you, you sort of need to be there. Watling Street was the equivalent of being on the tube line uh, in, in days of all. And I'll just sort of give you uh, uh, a quick run. I can't tell you the entire history in one, one, uh, one hour of this road. It's obviously it's all in, in the book outside. But to give you sort of uh, examples of the sort of things that uh, occurred uh, along this one single track. Obviously, that's Boudicca. Um, she was, uh, she, her rebellion against the Romans uh, was crushed in the Battle of Watling Street. Um, uh, here, uh, this was after the, when the Vikings came, there was a huge part of the country, it was the Dane law, the, you know, the, 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 the boundary between the Dane law and the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms was Watling Street. Um, Chaucer, Chaucer's one of the most um, well-known things associated uh, with Watling Street, because the Canterbury Tales is the story of people traveling along it, going from London um, to uh, Canterbury Cathedral. Uh, and, and it's the founding stone. It's the founding stone of English creativity, really. It's the first thing that we did in this island that was internationally seen as not bad, right? <laughs> Up until that point, we were just no one, right? We were just, we were just, we were out on the, you know, the damp, you know, outside. There was no reason to come here. We did nothing, you know, great or anything like that. Chaucer comes along, and instead of writing his tales in the accepted French, which was the language of the court, or possibly Latin, 
He used this, this, this language, Middle English, which was then kind of like a patois, like a patois of the common people. It was sort of very close to being um, uh, not snuffed out, but it, it could very easily be speaking English, but uh, 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 be speaking French, sorry, um, after the Norman invasion, um, which that was the language of, 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 of the rulers and, and things like that. But, but Chaucer, he writes this thing in, in, the, in, in English, and it brought us to life in a way that we still recognize. Uh, one of my, f I mean, the most famous bits of Chaucer are the bawdier ones, you know. I, I don't know if you know things like the Miller's Tale, that they're, uh, they're just great, you should read them. The, the Miller's Tale is about this adulterous wife, um, and uh, she's having an, aff uh, an affair when another suitor comes out at night and it's dark and he's calling up to her window uh, for a kiss and for a laugh she decides to stick her naked bottom out the out of the window and it's dark so he kisses the bottom and then he realizes what's happened so he comes back later with a, a red hot poker and hilarity ensues it's, it sort of goes on and on and you read that and you go i i, I recognize this sense of humor <laughs> this is this is this is viz this is carry on this is Mrs. Brown boys, this is Little Britain, this is those 1950s saucy, you know, postcards of the seaside. And, and it would be internationally recognised as a British sense of humour. But this was 600 years ago, right? And there was nothing about the daily lives of the people in the country then that's the same as they are now, you know. We're all peasants out in the fields then, you know. We hadn't had the Industrial Revolution, the Empire hadn't sort of, you know, come and gone, there wasn't the Digital Revolution, we hadn't sort of moved into cities. Our lives were entirely, entirely different. We were entirely different, except we had this, this sense of humour has been the same for centuries. It's almost as if some of the personality of the, the, this damp island sort of oozes out the ground and sort of infects us all. It's a... Uh, it's kind of weird. Um, what I, another thing I, I particularly admire about, about Chaucer's link to uh, Watling Street is when you hear about it, you're okay, yeah, so 600 years ago, Chaucer was writing about Watling Street. It's, and then you eventually realise that, hang on, that's the same street that uh, Star Wars films were filmed on. Uh, and, the, and the Indiana Jones films were filmed on Watling Street. And um, the, the East Enders set, Albert Square, is, is, is on, on Watling Street. The, um, it's that, I mean, that's all at Elstree, but if you go through London, uh, where the Globe Theatre is, that was the original sort of, sort of route before it went over London, London Bridge. If you, if you find uh, Miss Havisham's house from, uh, from Bleak House, from, sorry, Great Expectations, uh, that's on Watling Street. You read Moonraker, Ian Fleming's Moonraker, James Bond's driving land, Watling Street. It's just, there is no road in the English-speaking world more drenched in fiction, right? Than Watling Street. I swear blind. I swear blind. It's just, it's just, it's just soaked in the stuff. Um, oh, and pubs. Yeah, this is this is the very first uh, British pub, the oldest British pub we have. Um, there's a few pubs that claim that, but this is the one that the Guinness Book of Records went went with, and, and that's that's okay with me. That's the Yieldy Fighting Cocks in uh, um, where's that St Albans, and um, uh, and it's a, yeah, it, it's 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 a reminder that. Wherever we go in this country, right, there's always like a nice pub you can go in and be welcome and be warm and get a drink. Yeah, except for here. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, that's that, that's true. Um, yeah, um, just down the road there's plenty. Um, and that's that's not 
we take that for granted, but you know, there's countries where that's, that's not the, the case, and it comes down to the fact that basically, here, it just sort of rains all the time, and in an evening, you know, if you wanted to get out the house, that pretty much meant, like, going to someone else's house, because, uh, and so enterprising people thought, well, if I, if I open up, like, one room in my house and say anyone can go in there, right? Anyone can go in there. Uh, I'll call it a, pu a public house, a public house. And I could sell drinks uh, to make up the, you know, to make it worth my while. But it's, you can't go in the entire house. So I'll put a bar, I'll put a bar to stop people going in the public. This is because this is, this is of this damp, wet house and people just, you know, wanted to go out and get drunk with some people. All these, all this, all words like bar and pub and things like that all sort of stem naturally from it. Uh, yeah, there's so many battles. I'm not even going to be... This is the Battle of uh, Bosworth uh, Field. Um, basically, if you want to have a battle, right, you need to get your armies together. To get your armies together, you need a road. So it's just scattered right... It's riddled with highwaymen. Absolutely riddled with highwaymen. And... Um, Interesting thing about highwaymen, if you think of all the highwaymen in our culture, in our lifetime, say, second half of the uh, uh, 20th century onwards, films like uh, The Wicked Lady, um, Carry On Dick, they've been in Blackadder, they've been in, in Doctor Who, they're always cross-dressing, right? Every single example I can think of in mainstream culture, it was in, you know, Blackadder Third. It, it was in the Peter Capaldi Doctor Who. In, in Carry On Dick, the, the, the uh, highwayman is dressed as a woman and the woman is dressed as a highwayman. They've got every, everything sort of covered. This is the closest I can find to a highwayman in my lifetime that's not actually <laughs> cross-dressing. And he's pretty dandy, you know. Um, this, there are reasons for that. It's probably, it's, I probably don't have time to go fully into that, but there are a lot male and female cross-dressing highwaymen, people living outside the law. This was at a time when they chopped the head off the king, um, the, 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 the height of the highwayman age, it went on for a long time. Uh, but no, the normal rules sort of, you know, didn't apply. Songs like uh, The World Turned Upside Down were, were very, very sort of popular. It all, it all sort of feeds, feeds back into things like that. Uh, rugby was invented on uh, Watling Street. It figures <laughs> heavily. I, I'm, I'm not a boy about rugby. Uh, in the suffrage movement, it figures. Uh, Bletchley Park is on, on uh, exactly on Watling Street. And um, that's another example of one of those things. You think, oh, I know the story now. I know the story of Bletchley Park and all about... Alan Turing, and it's not until you go and you realise that, no, I didn't know half of this sort of stuff. I talk a lot about a guy called Tommy Flowers uh, in, in this part of the book, um, who's entirely forgotten, right? Hardly anyone knows the name Tommy Flowers. He, he invented the world's first digital programmable computer. Um, and we don't know about him because he was like a working-class guy from the East End of London who learned engineering at night school, and it was a very, very class-based sort of sort of system. There's always more to discover about things that you know. Uh, riddled with royalty, uh, Diana married at St Paul's on Watling Street. Is buried at uh, the Oldthorpe Estate on Watling Street, further up the way. Her sort of life is sort of stretched out uh, along it. The shard is is on there, you know. Burn, it. Burn the shard, yeah. That's <laughs> I, I can I can tell who's written who's read 2023 by the justifying <laughs> of Mumu from, from from the show. It's 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 it shows that the road is still modern. It's still it's still affecting the modern world. One example of that is uh, now, who would guess where I, what what English uh, town I took that photograph? 
Yeah, Milton Keynes. They don't do themselves any favours, do they? They, they really do. This is another sign that you see in Milton Keynes quite a lot. They're, they're not trying, but this is, we know, this is the centre of Milton Keynes. Uh, we know Milton Keynes as um, modern, right, as a new town. It was, it was uh, designed in the, in the 60s um, to, to house a quarter of a million people, the baby boomer population. Uh, oh, we didn't have enough houses, so uh, the state went, we'll just build some massive towns. Like, you know, none of this sort of leave it to the, the private sector. So no, we'll just build a quarter of a million uh, houses, and we'll do it uh, for the future, and we will do it for cars, and we'll do it on a uh, American-style grid system, and the and the, uh, the the roads that run horizontally are called like H6, H5, H4. Ones that are vertically start with V, V1, V4. It's very sort of rational, sort of modern, uh, logical sort of way of going uh, uh, about designing a town. But they kind of then like put it on Britain, right? And rational, logical things always go wrong when you sort of put put them on on here. We don't do that, you know. We're 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 kind of an absurd. We're, we're not an elegant sort of people, but we're just weirdly practical. In that, if you look at things like I don't know the the, the BBC, you know the the House of Lords, there's all these things that. You really wouldn't design it like that, right? It really wouldn't. The, the, the royal family in the 21st, you wouldn't go, yeah, I've got, I've got the best system. I've worked out logically. I've, I've done my research. Uh, this is the best way it would be. And yet these things, they all sort of weirdly work. They have this strange sort of, uh, the, the practical sense is more important than not looking an idiot. Like, we're very much an island that's quite comfortable with looking like a fool to the rest of the world. And we'll, we'll happily do that as long as it, it sort of works. But uh, where's I going with that? Yeah, we think of Milton Keynes as this rational, logical, you know, uh, uh, the white heat of technology uh, type city. But it was designed in the late 60s. And um, the chief engineer was a guy called, chief uh, architect was a guy called Derek Walker, right? And in his uh, obituary, uh, it quotes him, um, his obituary in The Guardian, I think this was, it quotes him as saying, of the times they were... Um, very kinky, right? <laughs> and it's not normally a phrase you find in obituaries of, of you know, th uh, town designers. Um, because it was the late 60s, it was massively into Pink Floyd. Uh, they were reading like Jean-Michel's View Over Atlantis. Um, it was, it was, it was, it was, it, the counterculture was hard to avoid for these, these sort of uh, people. And they just, they just sort of went, oh man, you know, this town, why don't we make it like a pagan sun temple, like Stonehenge. Why don't, why don't we align it to the, uh, the, the midsummer uh, sunrise on, on the longest day? And they went, yeah, let's do that. That's a great idea. So 50 years ago, they were out in the fields, out in the fields of Berkshire, Bedfordshire, wherever, with ropes and, and like stakes, and they were waiting, waiting for the sunrise. Um, to check its position was where they, they thought it was, and to, to, to align. You see, this is Midsummer Boulevard. This is the main <laughs> road down the middle. And you'll, you'll see it's sort of surrounded by like Silbury Boulevard, Avery Boulevard. You know, they're reading a lot of Jean Michel. So the idea was this there's the sun would rise, right, at the, at the end of Midsummer Boulevard, shine all the way down Midsummer Boulevard, uh, and light up the uh, railway station at, at the end, which was. <laughs> It's all mirrored. It was. It was. It was. It was going to be great. And they did this, right? They they actually actually did this. And I went along. Um, there's a, there's a podcast. I, I put some flyers for a podcast uh, uh, around. This was at 4:46. 
uh, on, on the, the morning of the longest uh, day. Now, 100 miles to the southwest, right, you got Stonehenge, and they had about 18,000 people there, sort of all waiting for... We had about 18 at Milton Keynes. It's, a, it's sort of not popular, but we got the sun. We got this glory... Well, it's supposed to be red, right, but with this projector system. Uh, we got this glorious red orb. It was a beautiful, uh, a beautiful sort of uh, thing. And the reason it works... The reason it can do, when you think of, you know, towns on a grid plan, they're normally designed uh, uh, to run north, south, east, west. But they couldn't do it here, right, because Watling Street was already there. Here it's called V4, but this is Watling Street, and it was at an angle. So I had to cant the whole thing at an angle to keep the sort of nice, neat grid system. At which point they go, God, it's sort of almost pointing directly at the, the midsummer sunrise. If we just tweaked it a little bit, we could turn, you know, Milton Keynes into this pagan sun temple. <laughs> which they did, as I say, which they did. And um, it really changes how you feel about, um, about, about Milton Keynes. Because uh, people in Milton Keynes, they really like it. They really like it there. They're very happy. It's, you know, not all towns you can say that. People from outside are, are very sort of sniffy about it. But once you, once you go to Milton Keynes and you're aware that it's laid out like this, and there's a lot of weird stuff. There's a lot of, there's a lot of weird pyramids everywhere and little sort of strange public sculptures on, on, on certain alignments and things like that. It suddenly becomes much better. It becomes, <laughs> it becomes really sort of quite an exciting place to sort of explore and, 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 and sort of look around. And, you know... Th it's just such a shame that nobody knows about it. There was a guy, when we were there this year, filming it with a drone. A drone going all the way down Midsummer Boulevard. Uh, and so we said to him, you know, how, are, you, are you familiar? Have you known about this alignment uh, for a long time? And he goes, well, I've lived in Milton Keynes since 1974, and I, I first heard about it yesterday, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's just not known. But it's an example of the, this town, this quarter of a million people town, is there... Because the road's there, because countless centuries ago, those feet travelling through those ancient forests found quite a good route, you know, in the, in the dry land to, to avoid it. It's the, the, those, the deep, deep ancient past still affecting, uh, still affecting us, still affecting the sort of modern world. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Let's move. Okay. Let's, let's sort of slightly move on to. Um, uh, this is Vortigern, right? This, this is another story that um, pops up at num uh, numerous places that, uh, through Watling Street. The story, story of uh, Vortigern. Now, not many people are familiar of, of Vortigern these days. He's, um, uh, he was massively famous. He's, he's a real king. He's, he's the guy who let the Jutes in and gave them the corner of, of Kent. And, uh, you know, he's got a very important uh, historical things. But he's best known through uh, Jeff Marie of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, which was written in the early 12th century and was one of the first bestsellers, really, other than the Bible, well, in all around Europe. This, was, this is uh, the book that inspired all the later sort of grail romances and, and, and things like that. Um, and it's great. And it was massively famous and a few hundred years ago everybody would know all the stories in it and it and it was it was it was our founding myth right it, it tells of Brutus of Troy found in London and all, all these sort of things that we don't really sort of know about these days because at some point sort of around the 1700s uh, people started going I think this guy's made all this up you know it's just there's, there's all these dragons and, you know, wizards and things. I, I think this is myth. I don't think this is history. We should, we should teach, uh, you know, we should teach books that are true, you know, like the Bible. Let's teach. So let's not, 
let's not read the history of the kings of Britain. Let's read the, read the Bible, and in that way, you know, the, the, the myths of this island were moved over for the myths of a completely different sort of sort of island. And it's a shame because there's, there's a lot of really great stuff in here. This particular story is uh, uh, comes from the Welsh end. There's in the foothills of Snowdonia. There's a place called Dimas Emrys. And Vortigern, this is towards the end of his end of his life, and his life is, uh, if, you know, Game of Thrones. It's that, right? It's Game of Thrones is a documentary of Vortigern's life. But at this, this at this point, he just wanted to build a tower. He wanted to build a tower at Dimas Emrys, and uh, the, the builders would go and they start building the tower, and then they'd go home at night and come back in the morning, and it would fall down. So they'd build it again and go home at night, and every day it would fall down, and they couldn't work out what was going on. So they asked some druids, and the druids go, oh yeah, i tell you what you need to do, you need to get um, a fatherless boy, right, get a fatherless boy, uh, sacrifice him uh, into the foundations, that'll sort out the uh, problem. And Vortigern, Vortigern goes, okay, well, uh, can you find me a fatherless boy? And as luck would have it, a fatherless boy sort of uh, turned up, and that was Merlin. Merlin is uh, a fatherless boy. It's a very sort of particular category of, of mythical or legendary people, uh, fatherless boys. We've got Hercules, uh, we've got Jesus, uh, we've got Darth Vader, we've got Merlin. It's quite, it's quite, a, it's quite a category. Um, and he, despite being a boy, you know, he wasn't having it, right? He really didn't want to be sacrificed for this tower. So he said to Vorkin, look, these druids are just talking like rubbish, utter rubbish, right? I'll tell you why your tower won't stand. What you need to do is dig a hole in the top, and you'll find inside, you'll find a lake, okay? And if you look in the lake, you'll find two uh, vases, right? And if you break open those vases, then you'll see why your tower won't stand. And Vortigern goes, okay. Uh, so he dug down and found, and there was a lake, and, and the lake with two vases. And he broke open these vases, and these two dragons come flying out. There's this red dragon, uh, and it, red, uh, and, and, and a white dragon. <laughs> And they're just um, tumbling through the sky, sort of attacking each other. And I should say, when we say dragons, because we're sort of used to the St. George and the, and the dragon sort of thing, we sort of think of dragons as um, like a fall guy for like knights and like rich lords and things like that. They'll kill a dragon and, and they'll look good sort of thing. Um, that wasn't, that wasn't what dragons were at this point. It was very similar to Japan and China, which are two other countries that also have dragon uh, traditions. Um, but whereas we've sort of downgraded dragons into sort of, you know, there to make the rich guys look good. Like, uh, the, the dragon of Wantley is a great example. This is a, more of a Yorkshire legend, but the, uh, the legend goes that more of more hall, this, this rich guy decided to go and kill a dragon. And so he went down to Sheffield and he got this suit and it was the spikiest suit of armour that they'd ever made. And he had big pointy feet and things like this. And he waddled off to hide in this well and wait for this dragon to sort of turn up. And the dragon turned up and he thought, right, I'll run up to that dragon and kick it in the arse. And, and he did. And luckily enough, that was the one weak spot of the dragon of Wantley, was, was the arse. So if you kick the dragon in the arse, it then would fall down dead. Now, there was no way, right, in a Chinese or Japanese legend, they would have anything like that. The dragon was defeated by being kicked in the arse. For them, the, the dragon was awesome, right? It was this elemental force. You know, it would represent the emperor or the people or, or something like that. It was, it was just an extraordinary, positive, sort of glorious thing. And dragons at this point, 
were exactly the same. They represented the people, right? The spirit of the people. If you watch the uh, John Borman film Excalibur, they totally get this. They they totally under understand that. Um, so when you had these these red dragon, this white dragon, sort of tumbling through the sky, sort of fighting each other, Merlin was able to say, "Like there's your problem, Vortigern, because you brought in all those those dukes, those the Angles, the, the Germanic sort of people. They're fighting with the the British people, uh, the Welsh, and and that's why your your tower won't stand." And weirdly, the, the dragons are sort of forgotten, right? in the story at this point. Basically, Merlin then just goes and gives about 12 pages of prophecy, and it's totally nuts. He just starts speaking about, uh, about what will happen, and it's just ranting stuff, and everyone's amazed. And the dragons are sort of forgotten, and they've sort of gone flying off to the northeast. And it's never really resolved. You know, it's not like there's a little pink dragon turns up later, and everyone's sort of happy, and it's all, it's, it's all sort of fine. And so I was, I was thinking about this red and white dragon sort of tumbling through, through the sky. And you see lots of pictures of it. And it started to remind me of something. I couldn't quite think what it was uh, un until it finally twigged, until I finally twigged. It was this. It was <laughs> it's red, right. The, the projector was working fine last week. And now there's a talk where there's loads of red. Yeah, well, we're all about the Well, it's all right. We can we can imagine imagine red. This is this is the Tudor rose, of course. This is um, uh, this is essentially the Good Friday Agreement, right, of the medieval world. Okay, this was the you know the the, the, after the wars of the roses had been going on for decades, absolutely decades. It was so many people slaughtered, their families were slaughtered. It just looked like, you know, it was an utterly divided country where never, there seemed to be no way that we'd ever sort of, you know, settle our differences uh, in this until uh, the Battle of Bosworth Field, uh, you know, Henry Tudor uh, defeats Richard III, marries Elizabeth of York, and comes up with this, right, this, this icon, this symbol. And the center is the white rose of, of York, uh, and it's surrounded by the red rose, uh, which comes to represent the Lancastrians or, or the Tudors. Um, and what they've done is really smart. What they haven't done is dismissed one side, right? They haven't, you know, wiped one side off the map, right? They haven't raised one above the other, right? They've just found a perspective where both are shown to be part of something that's better and bigger and sort of more glorious, right? This is the only way, right, divisions are healed, okay? This is exactly what happened uh, at the Good Friday Agreement. It was, it was you know, it, was, it, both, it wasn't a case of getting rid of one side, ignoring one side. It wasn't a case of rising one above the other. It was a case of finding, as I say, this, this, this perspective that sort of includes them, includes them both. Uh, we're good at this in this island. It kept coming up again and again, these images that are not just about division, but about transcending division. And I was writing this book, like, last year, right? You remember 2016, right? It was... It was, it was grim and it was dark and you'd go on social media and the people would be angry and there was angry people everywhere and the sense that we were split and sort of divided and, and things like that. But all the things I was finding was just evidence uh, that, no, 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 yes, we're divided, but also we're trans transcending divisions at the same time. Uh, not everyone can do this. If you, if you look at uh, Palestine-Israel, there doesn't seem to be uh, a, a larger picture that includes everyone. They can't sort of find that, and so it sort of continues and continues and continues. We ha do have, um, we do have this, uh, I'll go back to this. 
we do have this knack of being divided and also coming together at the same time. Well, I'll go, I'll go into this. This was um, after the Ariane de Grande uh, concert in Manchester. Uh, all these Manx, all these Mancunians, they just started getting this bee tattooed on them. Okay, and the bee has been um, a symbol of Manchester for, for a long time. It's on bottles and bottles, but it was sort of, you know, it's, it, it says uh, we're a community, we're industrious, you know, we can produce the honey in Manchester. That's all this. And after that, that shock that they all went through, they sort of needed something. And they all sort of flocked to this, this bee image. Um, and what's, what I like about it is it's a statement of identity that's in no way negative, right? It's, it's in no way divisive, right? It just says, we know who we are, right? It doesn't say, fuck Liverpool, you know, or any, anything like that. <laughs> right. It's just Manchester saying, we know who we are. Once you know who we are, that's your stage, right? Then you can fulfill, you know, who you, who you sort of need to be. Um, but I, I, I found when I was writing, you know, I'm, I'm from England and Wales, I'm writing a book about England and Wales, and a number of people would go, that's dodgy, you know, that's, that's you, you know, especially Scottish, you know, the, the, the assumption was, I must have gone the full Morrissey, right? <laughs> that, that, that there was no way to sort of talk about these things without becoming xenophobic or sort of nationalistic or, uh, or you know, putting, putting the, 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 the others down. Um, and this is... <laughs> this is... This is an example... This is an example of why I don't think that's the case. This is the kindred of the Kibo Kift. Okay, some, some, oh, we've got people. I never expected someone with a kindred of the Kibo Kift badge to, to be in the audience, but that's, <laughs> wow, that's a lie. Um, uh, the reason being is they now figure heavily in, in the story of the KLF for reasons that are far too complicated to sort of go into. In fact, they weirdly figure into every book I've, I've written, everything I'm doing. <laughs> Uh, as you can see, this, hold, this guy's holding this sign that says Watling Thing. Uh, thing being an Icelandic word for gathering, uh, a sort of tribal coming together. So the Watling Thing runs through it. I wrote a book about the, the 20th century. It was very uh, fascinated about this end of the First World War point when, you know, the, the world of emperors had sort of dissolved and, and how we dealt with that. This is exactly that. This is, this is exactly how it is. I've got this play about H.G. Wells. Um, it should be... It should be uh, should be hopefully produced next year. H.G. Wells was the sort of, uh, he was on their, their advisory council, they all worshipped H.G. Wells. Whatever I do, this, these weird sort of people sort of figuring, I should explain who they are. If you can imagine, all right, imagine the Boy Scouts. Okay, you got the Boy Scouts. Uh, imagine the Order of the Golden Dawn or some other occult fraternity. Uh, and imagine like the Fabians or something like that, and you sort of mash, mash them up. That the, there was a sense that the Boy Scout movement was a bit too sort of imperialistic and bugles and marching and things like that. And it led to this sort of progressive um, outdoors movement, the kindred of the Kibo Kift, uh, who included adults, who included people of both genders, uh, who, who were interested in sex education. Uh, this was, uh, they were pacifists. This was all sort of progressive, um, shocking stuff at the time. And they all had these mad costumes. Um, uh, and for various reasons, they're, they're now seen as precursors of, 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 the, of the KLF. Um, and you can, sort of, you can sort of see it, you know, in, in, 
in, in things like this. Uh, but they were very much into place. They were very much into the landscape. They were very much into sacred sites. Um, and going there in strange costumes and, and make, taking mad f uh, photos. Uh, they, were, they were very sort of feminist. Um, the, uh, yeah. The, for a while, for a short while, there were all these sort of very sort of positive things. And then the 1930s happened, right? Uh, and the 1930s didn't have quite the innocence of the, of, of the, of the 1920s. And a lot of these organizations, it was things like eugenics were in the air, uh, all these sort of strange ideas, uh, and they ended up um, marching in streets. Um, they ended up losing all the, uh, the archaic language, the, the arts and crafts, the strange banners they'd build, um, the, all the, the creative sort of explosion of all this thing they did to sort of where they became the green shirts, the green shirts, and they would march in the street. And their leader was this guy, uh, Jack Hargreaves, who was authoritarian uh, and uh, dictatorial, and he wanted everybody to follow him and, and, and things like that. And these were all the ingredients of, 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 of what turned the 30s so dark. But it struck me that it's kind of odd, actually, that these lot didn't actually become Nazis because everything seemed to be pointing at it. They, 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 they were doing you know, that sort of hand sort of signal. Um, they, 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 the initials were the KKK, right? Um, and for a lot of these things, there's reason, you know, K is the magical letter, three is the magical number, so when they chose it, that, that was the reason. They were, they were very much into Crowley, very much into sort of occultism. They had sort of secret ceremonies and, and things like that. Uh, they didn't know. They weren't doing that because of what was happening in America. They just, it was for those magical reasons. The, 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 the hand gesture was the, called the, the, the sign of the open hand. It was very much inspired by um, Native American culture. They were a bit shocked when the Nazis started doing it. They would sort of felt, well, they're copying us and things like that. Thing, things like that you can excuse. But there's a lot about them, this sort of dictatorial sense, this sort of, this belief that they were uh, the master people, you know, the, that they were the, uh, they were going to lead the, the coming generations and, and things like that, where you, you think they could have turned really, really bad. Um, I was on, I did a Radio 5 interview. Oh, okay, you heard that. And I, I started talking about these, and I, I said, oh, they were like the good Nazis, right? <laughs> And if you're ever on a live national radio program and you say the word good Nazis, the face of the, 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 the expression across the face is just, is just, just extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> but all the things they were pushing, they were, just remained incredibly internationalist. They, uh, they were, you know, they wanted everyone to speak Esperanto. Uh, you know, they, they were just incredibly sort of, uh, you know, welcoming and opening and, and wanted to sort of em em embrace all the, all the, all the world, uh, you know, population. I think they were sort of the opposite of, of where the 1930s were going. I thought, it's strange that, isn't it? And I remember reading, um, there's a biography of the super furry animals by um, Rick Rawlings. And that has this similar sort of strange dichotomy in it as well, in that 
you know, they're very Welsh, right? They're very proud of being Welsh, they'll sing songs in Welsh. Yet all their songs are about internationalism, about communication, about sort of mobile phones, about the whole world being joined up, you know, songs like the international language of screaming, about how to communicate with the entire, entire world. It's, it's the sort of the opposite of the sort of the jingoistic, you know, blood and soil fatherland, which is often associated with people who are interested in place, who are interested in land, who, who see that as, as, as sort of very, very important to them. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that when you truly do sink deeply into the roots and understand the place and how important it is and how valuable it is to, to you, you then respect uh, that in other people around the world. You then realize that they uh, are also valuable, that they also have their own cultures that are important and things like that. I kind of think when you sink your, deep, your roots deep into, into the ground, you don't... The, the sort of the, the internationalism of, say, new labour is very sort of very vaporous. You know, it's it's very easy to be stolen away by capital or sort of you know you or, or whatever. It, it can sort of uh, dissipate. Um, and um, a lot of people in the in the Brexit boat who are very internationalist couldn't quite understand uh, why the sort of left wing view of internationalism wasn't sort of registering with, with, with people, I think. The, um, there is a sense of us being connected uh, to where we're from, to where we're uh, brought up. Uh, not the state I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about the mountains, the communities, the, the rivers, the, the music, the, the, the sitcoms, the, the, the culture that's very, that becomes part of us, that becomes uh, that we'd be very different if we were born somewhere else in terms of the, the, the jokes we like, the, the, you know, what we drink and things like that. It's part of our identity. And I don't think politically that's very well understood. The left, as I say, are internationalist. And they see identity, well, it used to be in terms of, of class, but now it tends to be in terms of, you know, sexuality, ethnicity, religion, and, and things like that. And that's really, really uh, great for understanding, like, systematic bias and, and things like that. But it's not, it's not us. It's not the... It doesn't describe us. It's not when our families think of us. It's not in those categories. You know, if you were to say, uh, oh, Theresa May, Patti Smith, yeah, they're the same, right? You, that's nonsense. What's important about it is it's not the same at all. So the left, I think, don't quite understand that our sense of identity comes from where it is. Whereas the right, they're all over it, okay? They like anthems, they like... Um, they like flags, and they like marching, and, and things like that. But I think they've subverted it. I think they've sort of weaponized it against them. They've said, those feelings you have, those things you attach to, yeah, that's the state, right? That's the state. Uh, so, you know, follow the state. It's not the state at all. It's definitely not the state. The state is, you know, uh, something we've created and sort of projected onto, onto, the, onto, onto the world. Um, so, yeah, so I guess what this, this journey along Watling Street was an attempt to see again uh, this country at a time when it was so split, you know, when it, when it sort of was so, so divided. Uh, and, and, to, and to sort of see it fresh and to sort of find a, a positive way of understanding it, it's um, this, I mean, I, I really hate the phrase national identity. I use the phrase geography, the geographical identity in the book, but uh, for the sake of, of, of here, you know, national identity, right, is a work in progress, okay? It's not 
the case that they got it right a while back, right? And that, you know, every generation that, that comes after them has to sort of live in a heritage park version of, of what this country is about, right? Now, our identity is something that we need to uh, keep working. It needs to be a living thing in the way that the road is, the li is a living thing. It needs to be constantly evolving. And if it's not working for us, if it's dividing us, if, it, if it's a sort of, if it's an embarrassment to us, right? That's sort of on us. We ain't trying hard enough. We need to sort of go back and we need to, to sort of redefine it. And our soil is so rich, as I, as I say, there's no, no road anywhere in the world with as much fiction, but as much history. You know, it's very, very easy wherever you dig in this country to find something that will work for you, that, that's of value, that, you, that can become, you know, part of, part of your identity. To, to say, like the people in Manchester, you know, I know who I am. Um, and I guess that's what the book is about, really. The book is about trying to do that and, and, and trying to avoid all the, uh, the, the pitfalls of it. Um, yes, I'm rambling, so I'll I shut up. But, but thank you all so much for, listen, for listening to all that. <laughs> thank you, John. Um, yeah, we, we do have time for questions. I was thinking of having a quick five-minute comfort break first. If that's okay with you guys. Um, John's book is available outside um, from Newham Books. Five minutes and we'll come back for questions and uh, the books will be available when we finish as well. So, yeah. Thanks again, John. See you back here in five minutes. Right. So, we are going to have some questions now. Um, I'm kind of... When we say question and answers, we kind of mean question and answers. So, say, a question like... Why is Watling Street called Watling Street is a really good question because you're basically asking for some information from uh, the speaker. Um, what we're not so keen on is if you want to stand up and give a 10-minute lecture of your own and then justify it by saying, do you agree? Because... Um, um, because I... Because personally, I'd like to be in the pub by 9 o'clock and a lot of people have got questions, so yeah. Good, but questions in the pub are good. So, I'm going to go to this gentleman first and then this gentleman. Thank you for earlier. Um, and yeah, so that they're kind of the guidelines to it all. So, uh, Why Anglesey, really? Ah, now that is a good question. <laughs> it's slightly speculative, as all sort of pre-Roman stuff is, but... We, we know the, the original route from the, um, the Chronicles of Antonius or something like that. The road was up to Anglesey as the A5 is. It does seem that Anglesey at the time was the Cambridge, the Oxford, the Westminster Abbey of these islands. It, it was the... Yeah, no, it's, it's very different now. Um, but I, for, we don't know a huge amount... Uh, about the Druids. We've got certain accounts. They're mainly from France, but they would always say, no, you've got to go to Britain. That's the heart of Druids. If you want to learn it, you go to Britain. Uh, the Roman attack on Anglesey is weird on, on quite a few ways. We've got this great description from Tacitus. Because um, uh, 
the Romans never used to destroy native religious sites. That's not the thing they did. But on Anglesey, they're sort of smashing or, or burning down all the sort of the sacred groves. Uh, Druids never used to fight in battles. They were sort of advisors. They were sort of like in, in Anglesey. They were. It does look exactly like a sort of a last stand by a deliberate attempt from the Romans to destroy the heart of British culture, British law, British magical tradition, all, all the things that the, the Druids sort of represented. Uh, and it's sad because when you hear the accounts of the, the, the sacred groves of Anglesey, they, they just spark something in your head. And you go to Anglesey, it's barely a tree on Anglesey anymore. You know, it's, it's, it's quite, centres just windswept and, and, you know, because it was an oral tradition, everything sort of, sort of lost and things like that. But it does seem that Anglesey, was a was a very very important place. I mean, it, it was also it's the way to Dublin. It has that as well, you know. But uh, uh, it, it it does seem to be because the road, uh, the original road, uh, goes from Dover to the first ford on the Thames, and then from the, the ford on the Thames it goes to the, the ford on the Severn. You know, it does seem to be a long distance route to get to Anglesey from the rest of the world. Yeah, that's. Okay. Is. Is wattling derived from the verb to wattle, as in wattling and daubing? Uh, no, it's um, and thanks, thanks for asking that. <laughs> That's great. Um, it comes from a uh, a Dark Ages warlord called Washlinger. He or she um, was around where St Albans is now. That was, that was their territory, Washlinger's territory, because the road, it's always been there. The road went through their territory. They were sort of responsible for it. It became Washlinger's strata, strata from strata via paved road from, from, from the Latin. Um, that evolved, Washlinger's strata evolved into Watling Street. And we, and th this, is, this is where the weird thing comes in. There was a weird kind of magic about the name Watling Street. You know, all along that route, 444 kilometers, there'd be local names for it. But something about Watling Street, it's very British, it's very unassuming, it's, it sounds very sort of humble, but it just sort of spread. It went, you'll find it as far south as Canterbury, as, as far north as uh, Shrewsbury. Uh, it, it sort of got projected back in time. All books about Roman Britain talk about Watling Street. Um, you know, and I've, I've just used Watling Street for, 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 that, for that entire, it has a certain, certain charm. And it seems to come, the name Washlinger, from the Germanic world word for the for the British people when they when they, when when the Angles and the Saxons turned up uh, and the country was Welsh as that map said the the the, the, the British people who spoke the common Britonic language um, the uh, the Germanic people with no irony at all right called us foreigners right foreigners they're the foreigners right um, uh, which was the the Welsh. Wycler, Wycler the Welsh, um, whereas in our language at the time, um, we called ourselves Cymraeg, which means fellow countrymen. So foreigners means fellow countrymen. You know, it's like us means them in this language. It's, the, it's no wonder we've got very confused sort of, you know, a sense of national identity. It does, it does seem the name Washlinger Strata, Watling Street, does seem rooted in the name sort of given to the sort of original sort of people of these islands, I think. Yeah. Uh, hiya. 
Um, just thinking of, of your journey as a writer, so the first thing I thought when I saw this was, okay, the KLF book, he's got yeah. loads of freedom because it's art to go and create all these, you know, in the postmodern subjective realities world meanings and what it really means, but, oh, he's, he's got much less room for manoeuvre here because whichever way you spin it, the Roman invasion was AD 43. Yeah. So how, how is he going to approach this? Because, you, you know, historians will be straight on you if you, you know, deviate. I, I can handle myself against the historians. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um, as, as a writer, every book you do has to sort of get you out of the box that the last one's put you in, you know. The, the KLF book did quite well, so I could, there was a danger I was going to be the guy who does the crazy music books, right? And there would be a real sort of, you know, uh, diminishing returns if I kept, kept you know, Julian Cope book, you know, coil, it, it just sort of, sort of go nowhere. So that's why I did the book about the 20th century. Uh, it's kind of as a way to get a bit of credibility because I didn't have any, and it sort of worked, and it was, it was, it was great. Um, and I'm sort of trying to train my audience, right, to go wherever I go, right? It's sort of, so from going to all the situationist burning of the million pounds and things like that, to a book about all the science and the, the art of the 20th century, to go, right, A5. It was a test. <laughs> it was a test to see who would sort of come. But the book I'm writing now, or, or working on now, which I don't really talk about too much, seems to tie together KLF, Strange and Watling Street, all, this, all the ideas, that, that all those books generated certain ideas. And this is a book that sort of ties them all together in, into one sort of useful sort of, sort of bow. So, although it may look entirely random, you know, it's, it's uh, well, I don't know, it's my path, I follow my path, I can't, I can't tell where I go, you know. If I do do a book about the A5 or, you know, the, if next if I announce I want to do something about a route master bus or something like that. Trust me, there's probably a reason for it. There's probably a reason for it somewhere. I'll be on to money burning again at some point. <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else got any questions? Um, if Travis Elber is here and wants to talk, wants to talk about the route master bus, then... Uh, oh, yeah. Nope. Is Watling Street what, sorry, mate? <laughs> it's not, I don't think. It's, um, I don't think it figures, well, it, go, it goes through Northampton. Um, and in the Northampton chapter, I go meet Alan Moore and sort of, uh, you know, hilarity ensues as it always, always, always does. Um, Bill Drummond, well, it does get a mention in there. Yeah, it, it, Bill Drummond gets a mention uh, on flags, right? Because he, he came up with this flag called the Old Chevron, which is it's on the back. If, you, if anyone's got a copy, uh, you'll see Boudicca on the back is flying this strange flag that's sort of yellow and black, and it looks nothing like any sort of national flag. And that's because it was designed deliberately to look nothing like any national flag, but it was, just, it was Bill Drummond's Old Chevron, which was the flag for what he called the North Atlantic Archipelago, which is basically these islands with any sort of boundary or political division just wiped away. You know, these islands in their sort of pure sort of physical state. And I like that a lot, right? I really like that a lot. And I wanted to get that flag on there. Um, and then I got a message back from the guy designing the cover and goes, oh, I've got a problem with that flag. Uh, it doesn't work as bunting. It's absolutely impossible to sort of get it working as bunting. 
which is true. It doesn't sort of work. Bunting is... Um, I've, I've come to think of it as a, a very sort of... a great... It, it sums up something about this country, right? Most countries, if there's an event where you're supposed to put up the national flag, right, they'll just go, oh, well, we'll put up the national flag, right? And in America, they'll go, yeah, we'll put up the national flag, it'll be the size of a wall, it'll be the size of a building, we'll put up a flag so big, we'll just put up a massive flag. Here we go, well, right, we could put up a flag, or we could, like, like what if we made it the wrong, wrong shape? What if we made it <laughs> like a triangle? And what if we made it really small? And we just sort of put them up on, like, the, the lights, so it's sort of it's pretty and flutters and, and stuff like that. Um, and it's, sort of, it's, it's that thing I was talking about earlier. It sort of works, because it's flaggy enough for the people who want the flag, right? But for everyone else, they don't have to have a big flag everywhere. It's this, this sort of very sort of British thing. So I've got very, I've got very fond of, of, uh, of bunting, flag bunting, you know, as, uh, because of that. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's the great flaw in, in Bill Drummond's uh, flag designing skills. It just really doesn't work as bunting. Uh, yes, sir? Uh, do you cover Nuneaton? I'm afraid I, I'm afraid I don't. No. Okay. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> that was a great. <laughs> it's, um, it's a long road. I have to be slightly select. I'm sorry. So, sorry. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, one more question. And yes, not a bloke. <laughs> um, are there any stories you can tell us that didn't make the book? Yeah, there, there, was, uh, there was a lot. Um, what would be worth selling you, though? What would you be sort of interested in? There was. I wanted to go to Elstree Studios with uh, Toby Philpott. I don't know everyone knows Toby Philpott. He is the tongue and the left arm of Jabba the Hutt in Return of the Jedi. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's that's. As good as it, if you want a guide to Elstree Studios, the tongue and the, and the, the alarm of Jabba the Hutt was, was going to be great. Um, but I, have, I sort of have this rule that when I'm writing a book, all right, it's, it's, I can't go over 100,000 words because that's just rude, right, to the reader, right, because you've got a lot of things to sort of, and if you can't say what you're trying to say in 100,000 words, like, you're just not trying, okay, that's the sort of thing. So, I, sorry. <laughs> Well, see, I figure Alan Moore's earned the right to do a long book, okay. A lot of people haven't. Yeah, I think you have to sort of, it's like volume at gigs, okay. Like, if, if, you're, if My Bloody Valentine, if you're Dinosaur Junior, you've earned the right for volume, right. If some, some other people, they just turn up and they can't use, I don't know, that's, that, that's beside the side. Um, I can't remember where I was going with that. Chapter, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, that was one thing that didn't sort of make it in. There was... Um, uh, yeah, I can think of a libelous story that would work very well. Yeah. I really can't tell you. I'm sorry about that. So, um, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, yes, I will, I will discreetly move on. I think we've got to the last question. So, John, you can make a point now? Oh, yeah. Also, no, I was going to ask that. That's a good question. Uh, yeah, what time is it? I've got to get a train back to Brighton. That's but it. It's about 29. Yeah. Enterprise. Enterprise. Yeah. Okay, so, you're getting most of the fish, thank you very much, John Hicks. Thank you.
Welcome to the 